here. It's a wonderful uh, place for me to be this morning and to see that God is at work uh, here in this church and among His people. And So thank you so much, Paul, for inviting me to come. I'm going to walk through this psalm, Psalm 73. Uh, I do have the NIV, so it may sound a little different from the ESV, but you'll get the thought of it, and we're just going to look at uh, this passage. It's uh, really my favorite psalm, and there are a lot of psalms I like, but uh, Asaph, the author, uh, is a melancholic personality, uh, such as myself, so I can resonate uh, with him, and uh uh, over the years, I've wrestled with this whole issue of uh, doubt and belief uh, and how, how are they combined, how do they relate to each other. And Asaph certainly uh, wrestles with uh, the inequities of this world, and we see that in the psalm. I would like to read uh, three verses from the psalm uh, as we look at it. The first one, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Then verse 13, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure, in vain have I washed my hands in innocence. And then verses 27 and 28, Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your And we've had prayerful reflection on the psalm, but I would still like to ask if we might pray one more time for God's blessing. Let us pray. Father, this is your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through the written word, as well as through your Son, the living word. And we come to you and pray, Father, you might work in us. Speak. Get me out of the way, Lord. Uh, let me be simply a vessel. May your Holy Spirit be the one that works and speaks and meets us here. As we have worshipped you, we pray, O oh Lord, that we might draw near to you now. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I sat down with one of our new seminary students uh, recently just to hear his story. And uh, as we sat, I wondered, how did he get to seminary? And tell me a little bit about your life. And we sat in a restaurant and we talked. And, and he was raised in a Christian uh, home, a Christian family. Uh, as is typical, I guess, he went off to a large university, one of the biggest in the country. And uh, he was still walking with the Lord, but he took a class, and it seemed to so often happen. He took a Bible class there at this state school. And um, the class was very, very challenging because the professor just was constantly on the attack against Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. And the student thought he could withstand this, but eventually, Eventually, he was beaten down, he told me. And he gave me a little glimpse into his life because he said um, that his faith uh, really was very, very shaky. And he looked at me and he said, I cannot give you all the details. But he said, eventually, I had to go in for counseling because, in essence, it had undermined his life. And I looked at him and I said, yes, for the Christian, doubt can bring oppression. Doubt. 
It enters into our lives and it is a reality for all of us at times because we don't see it all yet. We're here living in this realm, living in a spiritual realm if we are believers, but waiting for the perfect to come. And so when life comes and strikes us, and his challenge was intellectual in many ways, but life comes to us, it's realities, they hit home, and we ask the question, where are you God? Or is this really true? What's going on? I trusted you. And Asaph, a few thousand years ago, goes through the same experience. And I thank God that he put his thoughts through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the page. And he writes this psalm that helps us as we walk through this world and its challenges and its trials. In verse 1, he actually starts with his conclusion. He's put a lot of thought into this issue, the inequities of life, and, and the fact that sometimes those who are godly do not have everything the ungodly and the unbelievers have. But he starts with his conclusion as he's wrestled through this valley, and he writes, Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. He comes to a conclusion, God is good. I wasn't sure, but I'm telling you right off the bat, I'm convinced God is good to those of Israel, to the believer, to those who seek Him. God is a rewarder of the heart. But in verse 2, He begins to let us know about his downward spiral, his experience. As for me, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. In reflection, he says, it hasn't always been that way. I didn't always believe that God was good to his children. I almost lost my foothold. I thought, Otherwise, I felt like I was going to lose God because I looked around at my world and I began to envy the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I looked around my world and saw that those who don't follow God, they get the job promotions. They have the bigger house. They drive the nicer cars. They have the the uh, three-car garage house or the four-car garage. They're, they're making it to the top, but they don't trust God. They don't believe God. They don't love God. But they prosper. They're party animals. But nothing seems to go wrong in their lives. I looked around at the wicked, the unbelievers. And as he studied them, he concludes they're doing pretty well for themselves. Where is God? They have no struggles, in verse 4. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They have an abundance in life. They have health. And I think between the lines he's saying, they have it good, but I 
am hurting. My life is painful. They're the unbelievers. They don't love God. But things are going well for them. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. They're free from, it seems, the domestic problems of life, the trials of day-to-day life. They don't have any problem paying their bills, but I'm struggling along just to make it month to month. What goes on here, God? Where are you? How come the wicked are doing so well? Pride is their necklace. They're the self-made men. They're self-reliant. God, you don't seem to bless the self-reliant, do you? They're wearing a necklace of pride. Now, I'm a big baseball fan and grew up following baseball. And back in the 60s and early 70s, there was a player by the name of George Scott. He was a big, burly African-American first baseman for the Boston Red Sox and Milwaukee Brewers. And, and back in the late 60s, um, a, a cultural shift occurred, and men began to wear jewelry. Remember that? If you're old enough, and, and it was, and it's, and it permeated its way into the baseball world, and George Scott was one of those who loved to lavish his appearance with what we would call jewelry, and he wore a necklace. And he had this necklace that was kind of like a coral reef pieces, and it was big and, and white and, and visible, and the, um, um, Reporters would ask him, George, what is, what's the sin, what's, what's that necklace all about? And he said, this necklace is second baseman's teeth. But eventually, George Scott wore a necklace that became an emblem of our culture in the 70s. It was a necklace that said simply this. This was a gold necklace, but it had this hanging off of it as an ornament. Number one. Number one. I am number one. And it was audacious that suddenly our culture, people were wearing these necklaces. Number one, it's all about me. And the psalmist says, the wicked are wearing pride as their necklace. They clothe themselves with Violence. They consider themselves number one and they climb the ladder of success and don't care about whom they step upon to get there. And I think Asaph might be implying they've stepped over me. I've been oppressed by the wicked. God, where are you? Verse 7, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their mind knows no limits. Their sin is blatant. Their hearts are full of sin. There's no limit to it. It, it, They had the doctrine of unlimited depravity. Just living for themselves. They scoff 
and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. They have no compassion in their lives. They don't care about the poor and the needy. And again, it may be Asaph saying, that that's who I am. And they're stepping all over me. And everywhere they go, it's all about me. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. In verse 9, their tongues take possession of the earth. They set themselves in God's place. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. We are our own gods. We are all that counts. Their tongues take possession of the earth everywhere they go. They speak in this way. Their mocking is everywhere. And then in verse 10 we have this verse that uh, many scholars say is difficult to interpret. And I like the NIV. I heard that ESV, and that will be a challenging one for me. But in the NIV it says, Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. What is he saying there? This is a picture of the atheist club. These unbelievers, the wicked, are mocking God, scoffing. And they gather together. They have their own little social groups. It's all about me. And their people are drinking it up. Tell me more. They're gaining adherence. It's a philosophy of life. Live without God. Don't give Him any thought. It works. Look at those believers. They don't look so happy. They don't seem to have it together. Where is their God? And that's exactly where He leads. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High God have knowledge? And in their skepticism, they conclude, there is no God. As a matter of fact, you believers, listen. If He had any knowledge, He would do something about us. We live for ourselves, but your God's not showing up. Does He have any knowledge? Is He omniscient? Does He know everything like you believe? It doesn't look like it. This is the way unbelievers and the ungodly make it through life. It's a huge case of denial. I deny God. I don't believe He's there. And that way, I can remain unaccountable and live for myself. And Asaph, he sees this, but they do appear unaccountable. They are prospering. They are making it. And he's not. And so, in verse 12, he concludes, this is what the wicked are like. It's like a spirit of resignation. He just shrugs his shoulders. It's what they're like. They're carefree. They increase in wealth. They get along. They do just fine. And here I am, a follower of God. He's resigned to his situation. How do you respond in life when you go through the tough times? When the crisis hits home, 
when you experience loss or disappointment, the loss of a loved one or something you hold dear, that opportunity maybe to get the promotion and not to make it. To wonder if you're a student here, am I going to make it next semester? I'm not doing too well. What's going on here? How do you, how do you respond? There's an inclination for us to question God, to wonder, are you there? Are you even on my side? You have all these promises. Where are you? And so in verse 13, he comes to another conclusion. He started with this conclusion, pretty, pretty cheerful, positive start, and then he takes his, that downward spiral, doubt, depression, discouragement. And now he comes to a, what I call a premature conclusion. He says, surely, truly, in vain, I have kept my heart pure or clean. In vain, I have washed my hands in innocence. He's not convinced that living the Christian life and trusting God and living for God has any value whatsoever. It's in vain. It's empty. It's hollow. Where are you, God? He questions whether or not his morality, his purity, his faith, his sacrifice, his self-denial... Is it worth anything? Because I was living for God, but now I've been hit with this crisis, this trial, and what and, and what I valued is gone. And and and, and the wicked—they're surviving. They're doing great. And he stops, and he throws his own little pity party. He downward spirals. This doubt has overcome him. And he says in verse 14, All day long I have been plagued. I've been punished every morning. And he looks at his life and he doesn't even really want to live it. All day long I feel plagued. I feel overcome. As a matter of fact, every morning... I feel punished. And what he's saying there is the alarm clock goes off and he and he looks at the new day and he says, it's just great to be a Christian today. Today I have to be a believer again and try to trust God. It's a new day, but I'm being punished. I have to follow God. And he's gone down, down, down. Doubting God's reality and His promises and His goodness and His faithfulness. He's just not sure. Have you ever been there? Where you wondered if God was going to show up? Where is He? What's going on here? The questions loom large. But in verse 15, he comes to his senses. He finds 
a turning point that stops him from the downward spiral. And he says, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. It's a pivotal verse. He stops himself. A friend of mine in college once told me, it's okay to doubt your beliefs. Don't believe your doubts. And he stops and he says, if I had said this, if I had decided to live in this realm of doubt, I would have betrayed this generation of your children He says, I thought about being a traitor. I thought about turning my back on God. I wasn't sure there was a God, but I realized that I would have been a discouragement to the people of God, to those who embraced me and who embrace the gospel. Verse 16, I tried to understand all this, but it was oppressive. To me, here is a man who is in the realm of the philosophical. I look around at life and try to figure it out. What does it mean? I try to understand it in this domain, and it leaves me confused. I have no answers. I am oppressed by the answers. And it's fine to study the philosophical, but it's not going to give you the answers. And he stops and he said, until I entered the sanctuary of God. He moves from the philosophical to the theological. And we're not sure he actually went to a sanctuary or a temple or if it was just that he left this realm, the philosophical, and he looked up. In the midst of spiraling down, he looked up. Oh, yes. God has spoken. And he moves from this realm to the thoughts, the mind of God, the theological. It's a turning point. Where what little faith he might have had, he sends it upward and is mindful who God is, what He has said. And he says, I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. He looks and understands Yes, the wicked, the unbelievers, they live for this realm, but there's another realm. I'm living for the next. It doesn't seem too good right now, but there's another realm. And there's a final destiny. And he understands eternity and the greater things of life. Harry Dent was a lawyer in Columbia, South Carolina. That's where I went to school for undergraduate and graduate school. And Harry Dent was a lawyer, a very successful lawyer. As a matter of fact, for a while he served uh, in the Nixon administration. But after that caved in, he came back to Columbia to practice law. And he'd been a churchman, but he really wasn't a Christian. He was a prominent lawyer, well-known and respected. 
My wife Kathy went to school with uh, his daughter and son-in-law, and I got to know them. And they said, you need to pray for our father. He needs Christ. And surprisingly, sometimes we're very surprised, aren't we, by the impact of the gospel, Harry Dent became a Christian. And he showed up in chapel where I was in seminary, and they let him speak in chapel. And here was a man, a prominent man, who had only basic theology. He didn't know much. But I still recall, as he talked about his journey in life, he would look up every once in a while and he said, That was before I understood the bottom line. To life. This happened before I understood the bottom line to life. And what is that bottom line? That bottom line is I do not want to stand in the presence of a holy, awesome God without Jesus Christ on my side. And this lawyer understood. He needed his own advocate, his own lawyer to plead his case. And Asaph understands there's a final destiny for believer and unbeliever. The judgment seat of Christ. And now he recovers a bit in verse 18. And here's that word again, surely or truly. He uses it a few times in the psalm because now he's, he's convinced. Surely you will place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. He understands the destiny of the wicked and the unbelievers. And now, in a sense, he asks, who's in a slippery spot now? My feet almost slipped, he says in verse 2. I almost slipped down into despair and depression. But now I understand there is a God who rules and reigns, who will judge And now I look at the wicked and they're on slippery ground. They'll be cast to ruin. And how suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. It's not a pretty picture for those who don't believe. Like the tsunami just a few Christmases ago that came in and took people away, the wicked will be swept away into judgment and lostness. Suddenly, as a dream, when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. The wicked's life is like, their lives are like a dream. They think they're living in a dream. They live in this life of denial. And they think everything's okay. But reality will come. 
And the psalmist plays on this a little bit, this concept of the dream when he says, when you arise, when you wake up, Lord, when that day of Christ, that day comes, when you wake up, they'll be despised like fantasies. They'll, they'll be whisked away. And he stops and says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless. He went through this trial. And really what he's saying is he was so grieved and hurt and embittered. It was as if he was saying, God, I don't like you. And thankfully, God allows us to speak back at times, to express our anger. He listens He knows we don't understand, but the psalmist says, but in reality, I'm like a brute beast. Stubborn. Not very smart. We have a pet at home. A dog. Our dog is affectionate. It's a basset hound. One of the most unique creatures on the face of the earth. And she is a, is a lovable dog when you look at her. But she's not very bright. She's not smart at all. And Asaph is saying, when I went through this cycle and I doubted you and I said, Lord, I wasn't thinking. I was like a brute beast. There was stupidity at the forefront here. Senseless and ignorant. My doubts. I I, I was only thinking on this realm and I forgot to look up. I forgot to hear the whole council. I forgot to listen to you. I forgot to look at the first advent. That there's a bottom line. That you have a son. I forgot to look upward. And then, in verse 23, he wears his heart and his experience on his sleeve. He becomes impassioned, intensely personal because he's come through the worst. The questions. He's been at the bottom. But he's faced the reality of God's constant presence. Yet, I am always with you. Even in the worst, even near the bottom, he understands God is faithful. He's there. He's on my side. You hold me by my right hand. I almost slipped. But You held on to me. And if you're a believer, His faithful Holy Spirit lives in you. And He won't let you go even near the bottom when you wrestle with God. You guide me with your counsel. And He recognizes He's on a journey 
You need guidance. And afterward, you will take me into glory. There's a destination. It's beautiful. We're on the journey, but there's a destination. And we have a faithful God who will take us through it. Whom have I in heaven but you? He spent a lot of time looking around at materialism and this world, sensualism, hedonism, the wicked, self-life. He spent a lot of time looking at that and took his eyes off of this reality, whom I have I in heaven, but you. You are what counts. You are it. If I have you, I have everything. Being with you, I desire nothing. Nothing on earth. He's come full circle. Cynthia was a student at RTS who kind of backed her way onto campus. She sent me her application and she called me as well and she said, when you read this, you probably won't accept me into the seminary. I'm just going to tell you up front. She had grown up into a very, in a very strict Christian family. Had gone off to college, left the Lord way behind. Very, very bright, very, very sharp, attractive, successful, A-type, driven, going to make it. She gets through college, she excels. She lands a job, she moves her way up. She uh, gets married, and she has everything you would think someone would want. She has wealth. She has a place, a nice place to live, whatever cars she wants to drive. A reputation, vice president of a large corporation uh, in Atlanta. She's doing, doing very, very well. She has it all. But then her husband decides to leave her. Because he doesn't have her. And suddenly she began to look at life differently. And God came and met her and broke her. And she lost her husband. But she found Christ. And so she says, I want to go to seminary. And she told me one time, I had it all. It means nothing. Asaph says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. And Cynthia completed her seminary education. And as a single woman, went to the country of Japan where she serves now and opened the first ever adoption agency in a country that aborts children Far beyond what we do here. Cynthia and God. Whom have I have I on earth but you? I desire nothing but you, Asaph says. My flesh and my heart may fail. I might be stricken with cancer. I might have a heart attack. I may lose my health, but God.
is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. I may lose everything, but I have everything. I have Him. I have eternity. I have eternal life with Him. We don't value that in this day and age. We live in this day and age, even as Christians, for this world. This world is nothing compared to the next. It all hinges on the Gospel. The Son of God who came to reveal to us that we can know God as we embrace the cross. That we can be forgiven as we entrust ourselves to one who shed his blood. God, very God, becoming man and dying for us. One who gives us his righteousness. So that as I think of the bottom line, I don't want to stand before God in my own good works, my own self, because it will be my own brokenness and sin. How am I accepted before God? It is through the righteousness, the gift of Christ. And so he comes to his third conclusion, his final conclusion. Verses 27 and 8. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. They look like they're succeeding, but their lives are not on the road to success. They're on the broad road to destruction. But as for me, and he's come through it here, he's come through the ringer of doubt. As for me, simply stated, it is good to be near God. To draw near to God. To walk with God. To pray and fellowship with God. To love God. To be close to God. To seek Him more now than I ever have. I've made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. If I'm going to hide anywhere, it is in Him. In His security. In His certainty. I will tell Of all your deeds. Conclusion. God is with me through the worst. In the worst, I have the best and the most and the greatest. I have Him. Those who don't will perish. But me, I'll draw close to God. This year, my high school decided not, those who planned these things decided not to have my 35th high school uh, reunion. Uh, I guess I'll have to wait till the 40th before I see uh, anyone uh, again. At least I see a few of them occasionally. But um, we have created a website. And so we have a website that can keep us up with news of, of people. But one of the sad uh, parts of that website is there's a place for those who have passed away over the years. And you know, one of the saddest things on that website that, that I can see is uh, many of them are the ones who lived their lives early on Without Christ, they didn't know Christ. They were not in the church. It's a sad tale. But they live lives in the fast lane and they're already gone. 
There are two worlds we live in. In this world, we can take the broad road that leads to destruction and seem to have everything when we have nothing, or we can take the narrow way that leads to life. There we have everything. Beyond our imagination, we have the living God in the midst of the trials and the struggles and the difficulties of this world. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we consider this Advent Sunday and we are mindful that Your Son came. He was despised and forsaken and was a man of suffering and sorrows acquainted with grief. He knows this world but He reigns with you today in a glorious way we cannot comprehend. And I pray, Father, that you will encourage us to be mindful of His work, His life, our hope here in the Christmas season when many miss what it's all about. We ask these things this morning in Christ's name. Amen.